You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So, we are in Psalm 143, and we are down to the final seven psalms now as we're approaching the end of the book of Psalms. So today, 143, let me just quickly pray before we look into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, now for this time we get to just appear into the wonderful things contained within your word. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us, that you would edify us and equip us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it's the 6th of October today, 485 years ago to this day. A 42-year-old man was led to a city square in Vilvoord in Belgium. He was tied to a stake, a chain was put around his neck, he was strangled, Gunpowder was put at his feet, and he was burnt alive at that time. Anyone know who, who it was? It was William Tyndale. Today is the anniversary of his death. If you know William Tyndale, his crime, the reason for which he was burnt at the stake, was he translated the Bible into English because he wanted the common man to be able to read the Bible so that they would not be deceived by the popes and the religious authorities who did not allow people to read the Bible at that time. On the throne in England was a man called Henry VIII. I'm sure many of you, if you've been through school in the UK, you will know a lot about Henry VIII, mainly that he had seven wives, and that's probably all you'll know about him. But he's a very checkered man. But at this time, in his early part, when Tyndale was translating the Bible, and the English Bible started coming into England. Henry was extremely mad about that. He plotted with a few other people. He banned Tyndale's Bible, calling it a work, a heretical work. He did not want people reading it. And they plotted, him and his, a few people plotted, obviously, to stop Tyndale. I don't have time to go through the whole story, but it's a, one filled with adventure and intrigue and ultimately betrayal. Tyndale was befriended by a man who was not really his friend, but was planning on handing him over to the authorities, and he tricked him into coming to his house. He spent about a year earning his trust, and then he uh, set him up, and Tyndale was arrested and spent a year in the dungeons in Belgium. And ultimately, he was sentenced to death. And as he was led out and he was tied up, like I read at the beginning, he was given one final opportunity to recant, as was often the case, and refusing to recant, it's recorded by Fox's Book of Martyrs that he uttered his last words, a short but serious prayer, and he said, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Now this is quite a prayer. He's about to be burnt alive by the King of England at this moment. However, miraculously, within three years, Henry VIII authorised the translation of the Bible into English, Not only that, he made a royal decree that every one of these Bibles should be placed in every church in the land. Now, the Bible that he authorised was called the Matthew's Bible. It was written by a man called Thomas Matthew, and that is what the king believed. However, most we know now, there was no man called Thomas Matthew. That was a pseudonym of one of Tyndale's closest translating friends, a man called John Rogers. So, in fact, the Bible that Henry authorised was actually William, pretty much William Tyndale's Bible that he burnt him for the stake for translating. And if you look in a Matthew's Bible today, there's quite a few copies of them still around, you will notice that between the Old and the New Testaments, usually we have the, the, the Book of the New Covenant or something like that, there's a little 
WT initials in between those books, which is giving homage to the fact that this is William Tyndale's work that was done under the king's nose almost. It's a wonderful story, and we are all sitting here today pretty much with somewhere along the chain Tyndale's work on our laps, and that's the reason we can do that, the reason he was killed. Reminds me of that quote again, the story of every great Christian achievement is the history of answered prayer. For Tyndale it was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. A few short words, but the Lord did wonderful things. And we are going to see now in Psalm 143 the power of prayer in the life of David. We get another glimpse into the prayer life of one of the great characters of the Old Testament. If you remember last week we looked at two Psalms that were both from David and we saw, uh, as we have many times throughout the book, David's life was often very difficult. Now if you know me, you know I love looking at people's Bibles and snooping on their notes and seeing what sort of things they do. Some people call it a gross invasion of privacy. I call it passioned enthusiasm. But I do like doing that. It's just I find it interesting to see how people's mind works when they're studying and reading the Word of God. And I think the Psalms are really a bit like that. But we're not just looking, I'm not just snooping on one of you guys. I'm not that I do that. I say snoop. I don't do that that often. But if you leave your Bible, I might do that. But we are peering into David's Bible notes here. And we're actually going to see one of his recorded prayers. So we, are, we actually get to peer in, really, to one of the most private and intimate moments in the life and character of one of the greatest people in the Old Testament. We don't know the context of this particular psalm. Uh, the Vulgate, that's the Latin Bible, has a little heading that says it was when he was fleeing Absalom, his son. Absalom tried to steal the throne from David, and David fled for a period. Some people put it in that context. We don't really know, but that does fit. But how often have we seen David in this book, in a time of trouble, in a time of despair, in a time of deep depression, crying out to God? And this shows us a number of things. Firstly, as Christians, as believers, we are never promised an easy life. In fact, it seems to be quite the opposite in many ways. We are never promised that. But we are promised that through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord will never leave us. And that is how we get through these times. However, it also shows us by reading these Psalms that often the most fruitful times of Christian growth and some of the most intimate times we have with the Lord come on the back of these very dark periods in our lives. If you've been through that, you can probably testify to that sometimes. And as I said, we know God is always with us. We have his promises for that. We are, we've got about seven more Psalms left. It's interesting if you read through these last ten Psalms, the majority of them start off with prayers, prayers from a bad place in David's life, and then the last five are really just praise. And there is always a connection between prayer and praise that I think we need to grasp, but maybe we sometimes don't realise that there is a connection really between everything we do in this world, every activity that we do in church, there is a connection between prayer. Those who pray little will praise little. It's as simple as that, really. True praise. As we've seen in the previous Psalms, prayer is non-negotiable. We need to learn everything we can about it. And of course, with prayer, one of the best ways to learn is in fact to do. Learn by doing, often the best way to learn these things. So with all that introduction, let's jump in, read the first four verses. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness, and do not enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight no man living is righteous. 
For the enemy has persecuted my soul, he has crushed my life to the ground, he has made me dwell in dark places, like those who have long been dead. Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me, my heart is appalled within me. Notice in verse 1, we have a threefold repetition. We're going to see this all throughout this psalm. He does a threefold repetition of his points. He says, hear, give ear, and answer. All basically to say the same thing, really, there. Hear, give ear, and answer. And because he does this three times, you can really sense the urgency and desperation of his plea. And I think, until we really understand our own condition, David knew very well his own condition by this stage in his life, but until we understand our own condition... I think our prayers will lack this sort of urgency. As long as we cling to that idea that somehow we are living a good Christian life, we probably won't have that sort of urgency. Quite often we can go through a day feeling pretty self-sufficient. We may have had a quick prayer in the morning and a quick one before bed, but the bulk of the day is spent in the busyness of life. And thus, because of that, through no fault of our own sometimes, we do have a tendency to be very self-sufficient. If we come to the Lord on days like that, having taken care of ourselves most of the day, it's almost as if part of us, maybe subconsciously, is saying, well, here I am, Lord, I'm just checking in before I go to bed. Done pretty well today, as you see. I didn't really need your help, didn't need to call on you for too much. And now I'm going to have a good night's sleep and we'll wake up the day and we'll do it again. And just because life is so hectic, and sometimes it is all go from the moment you get up, I understand that, but we still... You can probably sense that little trap in your own lives. I definitely can in my life sometimes. You, you, it's easy to fall into that trap. And I think because of that, sometimes we just lack the urgency that we read in prayers like this in the Bible. A lot of us are probably not intimately familiar with this sort of urgency in prayer. And that is something the Lord wants to rectify in our life and he wants to take us deeper. So let's not kid ourselves. We know life in this world pushes us towards self-sufficiency quite often but as Christians we're not self-sufficient we do know someone who is all-sufficient and he is the one that we must draw our strength from we need to get this urgency how do we get it David had to flee he had actually a royal takeover of his throne massive political maneuvering a political coup and he was uh, ran out into the wilderness he was hiding Um, because people were trying to kill him. That is what it took him, really, before he cried out in desperation to prayer. And it's a good sense to ask ourselves right now, what would it take us? What urgency would we need to cry out to the Lord with the same desperation that David has? Now, I'd like to say, hopefully it won't take something like that. I would say an easier route is actually just to listen to the word of God and obey it, and you'll find the keys for an effective prayer life. He says, answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness. Notice, God's faithfulness, God's righteousness. As David knows, God has promised him certain things, chiefly that the Davidic covenant, that he would go on to sit on the throne and he would have descendants who would rule on the throne. David is basically praying that God would show him his faithfulness in answering those promises. Hebrews 10.23, he who promises is faithful. That's one of the promises that we can take to the bank, so to speak. What David is basically doing here is pleading the promises of God in prayer. And this is a very good model for us as Christians, pleading the promises of God in prayer. Of course, there is a catch to that. To plead the promises of God, 
we must be familiar with the promises of God. The promises of God are many in the Bible, but actually, if you do this task when you get home, sit down and ask yourself, how many of them can I list just that are in my heart, that are in my memory, that I could plead in a moment of desperation? And you'll probably surprise yourself, and it'll hopefully make you actually want to learn a few more of these promises of God. I include myself uh, in that too. It's an interesting activity to do. We need to learn the promises of God and we need to use them in prayer. Not like some formula. You've got to actually be in relationship and, and love the Lord and want to learn his promises. But that is what David is doing here. He says, in your righteousness. You see, he knows God is a covenant-keeping God. That word that we've seen so often through the Psalms, loving kindness, is the word that means you are a loving, promise-keeping God. That is who we worship, a loving, promise-keeping God. And this is what he says, your righteousness. David knows that we don't come to the Lord in our own righteousness. This is the point here. That moment that we think that our cause is just, our cause is more righteous than anyone else's, we come to him in our own righteousness. To do that is really to display a lack of understanding of our own true state, like I said. We come to the Lord in his righteousness. He is the only one who is righteous. He says, and do not enter, verse 2, into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. He's basically saying, do not deal with me on the basis of my own righteousness. And that is what we all plead to, because we know if God was to deal with us on the basis of our own righteousness, we would all deserve judgment. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. doesn't matter who you are, great, small, leaders, anything. We've all fallen short. We don't stand on our own righteousness. It levels the playing field because the only way that we can stand before the Lord is in his righteousness. We are given that righteousness through what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That is one of the things in theology that we call the substitutionary atonement. That through Christ's death, the righteous one paid for the unrighteous. He stood in our place. He died for us. That is one of the glories of the gospel. And therefore everyone regardless of who they are, stands before the Lord in Christ exactly the same. And that's just a wonderful truth of the gospel. We do not stand in our own righteousness. Martin Luther called this psalm the Pauline psalm. Now, of course, Paul wasn't around at this time. He didn't write any psalms. But if you can notice, if you, if you're pick, you picked up on that verse where it says, for in your sight no man living is righteous, that sounds very similar to something that the Apostle Paul wrote many years later in the book of Romans as he was writing about this truth about justification and righteousness. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in your sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Very similar concept, just slightly different wording, but the point is exactly the same. No one is righteous, it's all by God's righteousness. What David is saying here is, I do not come before you to plead justice on the grounds of my own righteousness. I know it is all you. I'm coming on the grounds of your mercy and your grace. And that is how, again, we approach the Lord today. Boldly, because of what Jesus has done, but thankful for his mercy and his grace. Verse 3, For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in dark places like those who have long been dead. Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me, my heart is appalled within me. That sounds, that's pretty strong language, right? Sounds like he's in a pretty bad place in his life right there. So many times I've had people say to me when they're sort of 
maybe thinking about whether they are going to entertain the idea of becoming a Christian, and they want some sort of reassurance, and they, and they always phrase it like, so you're saying, if I become a Christian, everything's just going to be good in my life. And at that point, you know you've got a serious misunderstanding on your hands here, and you have to back up a few steps. That is definitely not what the Christian message is. Now, I believe the Christian message is the best thing and best option available for every human person, and its glories far outweigh anything else that the world can offer. But in this current world, we are promised that because there is an enemy who hates our souls and wants to keep us from that glorious gospel, we will suffer persecution, you will have tribulation. Just the fact that we live in a broken world, a fallen world as the Bible calls it, means that regardless of anything we may or not do or not do in our lives, we will encounter brokenness all around us. You don't have to watch the TV for too long before you see that. Watch the news, you'll see thousands of examples every single day. We know that. But David here is in a bad place. It says again, notice the triple repetition here, persecuted my soul, crushed my life, dwell in dark places. So when he says persecuted my soul, he's not even really concerned about the physical danger that he might be in at this time. He is more concerned about what it is doing to his heart and his soul, being on the run, why is the Lord letting this happen? All these questions that you can imagine are going through his mind. He says, my, my life is crushed, crushed my life. The image of being crushed there is someone being pushed down forcefully. And then he says, dwell in the dark places like those who have long been dead. So he's so in such desperation here, he, he's even contemplating death as the place where he feels like he is. He's overwhelmed, his heart, his spirit is appalled, or and my heart is appalled within me, your Bible might say desolate within me. He's in a place of no comfort, cheerlessness, he's in a wasteland at this time. Yet, the psalm doesn't end there. As we shall see, he does get lifted from this place and the, the means by which he is lifted out of that period of darkness is through prayer. And that is, again, following on from what we learned last week. Prayer is absolutely essential, non-negotiable for the Christian life. Verse 5, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your doings. I muse on the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as a parched land. Selah. So now again, we see another threefold structure. I remember, I meditate, and I muse. He says, I remember the days of old. He thinks back to what God has done in his life, to those sweeter times of fellowship that he's had with the Lord, to those mountaintops, as Christian preachers often call them, to those youthful years, maybe. He's a little bit nostalgic about those times in his past. Sometimes it's good to think back on places you've been, remember those times you had with the Lord. Sometimes those good memories can get you through some really tough times. That is what he's doing here. He's remembering the days of old. It says, I meditate on all your doings. To meditate is to think seriously, to consider. It could be translated even as study. He, cons he considers he meditates, we call this biblical meditation, the works of your hands. He says, I muse the works of your hands. Muse and meditate are two very similar words. Muse has a slightly more of the connotations of after you've thought, you're speaking out and making your meditation is affecting the way you speak. So that's the idea of those two things being put together there like that. And he muses on the work of God's hands. 
So he's not just thinking about what's happened in his own life now. He's going much broader than that. He's probably thinking of all that the Lord has done in the nation of Israel up until this time, all that he's heard about with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, even back to the creation of this world and all these things that God has done. These things are all inspiring. We are to think on these things. The Apostle Paul says, think on these things, whatever is true, right, honourable. And he goes on and on with that list. This is what David is doing here in this time of darkness, meditating on what God has done, thinking of times he's had with the Lord and all that God has done in this world. Now, if we were to do the same, what would we do? Where would we find most of these things recorded for us? Yes, we can go to our own personal examples in our life, but it may be you don't actually have too many in your life at this time that you're thinking back to. But there's a whole book of revealed revelation that is full of God's working in this world. And the overarching story of the Bible is that God has come down to redeem us, to save us, and to give us a future that is unimaginable. That is the gospel story in a nutshell. And that we can be thankful for. That is something that the world cannot offer anyone. The world can offer deceit and lies, but the gospel offers truth because it is authored by one who is truth. This is what David is doing here. And then in verse 6, look what the result is. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as for a parched land. This is the response. After you have meditated on the word of God, you have thought about the Lord's working in this world, you will lift up your hands. You will burst forth in praise. This is why the simple advice that you often hear from Christian, well, pastors, let's be honest, pastor, it's not a cliche, read your Bible and pray. You know, we're not actually fobbing you off when we say that, read your Bible and pray, that's actually good biblical advice, that's exactly what David did at this time, read the works of God or thought on, meditated on the works of God and then he was left in a position where he wanted to lift his hands, declare his whole life to be the Lord's and praise the Lord. He stretches out his hands to the air, this is a position of prayer in the Old Testament, this is a position of humility, of submission to the Lord and he declares that his soul longs for God. You could translate that is thirsty for God. That gives us a nice imagery that we can all understand. We need to thirst after God. That is something we must do. Too often we allow the pressures of the world to overcome this thirst. Or I would say maybe not overcome it. I would say we actually quite often find ourselves seeking refreshment at any other source of liquid that we find in this world, speaking metaphorically obviously. But when we do that, we often pollute our bodies with what we could call unclean water. We are not going to the right source. And this was the problem of Israel. Jeremiah the prophet, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They forsook the fountain of living water. They left the Lord and they went into the world and they found their own resources. And that's why they ended up far from the Lord. And this is a good time to ask ourselves, if, you are, if you're more familiar with David when he's sitting in that cave now in a time of trouble and desperation, ask yourself, what are you meditating on at this time? Metaphorically, again, what are you drinking? What refreshment are you putting into your body? If you are not putting the word of God into your body, if you are not musing about the things that God has done in this world and in this life, the promises he has made, the chances are you will not be lifted up out of that place. Sometimes, the very ways to deal with the most complex things in life are some of the simplest solutions that we have in the Word of God. 
read your Bible and pray. Like I said, that's not a pastoral cliche. That is actually the most basic fundamental advice that we could give. And we see pretty much every saint in the Old Testament doing that at some point in their lives. Must be the word of God and prayer. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 6? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verse 7. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will become like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. We have another triplet here, if you notice it. Answer me, do not hide, and let me hear. Answer me, do not hide, and let me hear. He needs God to respond quickly. His spirit is failing him, as he says there. He feels like he's going down to the pit. Let me hear. This is a man who, in the midst of this time, this darkness, he desires to hear from the Lord, to absorb what the Lord has to say to him, to experience once again afresh the loving kindness of God. And this is a good picture of the correct attitude we should have in these times. It is very easy to build up resentment and bitterness in these times. I'm sure many of you have probably experienced that in your life. Either bitterness at God, or bitterness at the circumstances, or bitterness at people around you who you don't feel have represented what they claim to believe in a way that is accurate. Now, all of these things can be true, but also dangerous at the same time. I would advise you to give them over to the Lord at this time. That is not what he wants you to dwell on. He wants you to come to him for that fresh water. We want to hear from the Lord. This is our attitude. He has a desire to hear God speak to him, rather. And these are probably the people that God will speak to, the people who are seeking him. The promise is, if you seek me, you will find me. He says in verse 8, Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. Those who, in spite of all their troubles, still faithfully declare their faith in God. Think of William Tyndale right there, noose around his neck, fire at his feet, just recant and you'll be fine. And he prays, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. In spite of this, he says, like David, I trust in you, and then teach me the way in which I should walk. For to you I lift up my soul, deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies, I take refuge to you. He wants to be taught by the Lord. Teach me the way I should walk. And is that not the true heart of any disciple? If you are here and you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, and if you're a Christian, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, the word disciple literally means to be a learner. You are to learn from the king. You are to learn of his ways. You are to learn of what he says about this earth. You are to learn to see the world through his eyes. You are to learn from him, and you are to do that whilst you follow him. That is what it means to be a disciple, and one of those things will be to hear from him in prayer. You need to pray. It reminds me, what did the disciples ask Jesus? Lord, teach us to pray. And then he gave them that famous prayer that we all recite by memory mostly, Lord, the, the Lord's Prayer. He says, lift up my soul. Now as disciples, when he says soul, this is really referencing his posture towards God with his whole being. 
As a disciple, we want to have that cry in our hearts, Lord, teach me, Lord, teach me, Lord, teach me. And as we have that desire, our heart and our soul, all of our being, everything we do will be looking upwards. It will be in pursuit of the heavenly goals and not earthly ones. An attitude where all our guidance, instruction, wisdom, direction, everything is flowing from that upwards relationship, that posture that we have towards the Lord, that disciple's heart that says, Lord, teach me, you're the only one who knows the way. That is what a disciple should do. David, I believe, had that heart. Verse 10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. In your righteousness, righteousness bring my soul out of trouble, and in your loving kindness cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am your servant." Again here we see this emphasised, the disciples' heart, teach me to do your will. So another teach me here, again, teach me, I want to learn, I'm a disciple, I'm ready to hear from you, Lord. And it says, teach me to do your will. What does it mean to do the will of God? It's like David is praying here. This means to walk in obedience, to walk in obedience to the Father's will, to the will of Jesus Christ, who represents the Father's will. This is the very essence of prayer. Really, this should be one of the reasons why we come to the Lord in prayer. Too often we just come to the Lord in prayer, I believe, with our requests for the day and our situations. That's absolutely fine. That is, we're commanded to do that many times in Scripture. But I believe we must kind of have this the right way round. One of the main purposes for coming to the Lord in prayer is, yes, communion, to learn from him, but is to have this on our hearts. Lord, teach me. Speak to me, Lord. I'm listening. I want to know how to do your will. This is the very essence of prayer. How did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? As we said, Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's exactly what David's praying here. Teach me to do your will. Jesus affirms that desire as a true desire for all Christians who would pray. As Christians, we want to work in step with the will of the Lord. And why do we want to do that? Because this is what Jesus did. It says he came to do the will of his Father. He did it perfectly. And why do we want to do it? Because we seek to imitate Jesus Christ. We imitate Jesus Christ. That is, again, one of the, another way to look at discipleship, imitating Jesus Christ as we are being transformed into his image. This is what we do. And with David, we can thus affirm and say to him, you are my God. But also he goes on, he says, let your good spirit lead me on level ground. This is another acknowledgement that we need guidance in this world. Amen? We do. We need guidance in this world. The world is described as being in darkness because mankind is fallen and separated from God and we live in a broken world. But the Lord has given us various things that he also describes to be light in this world. What are they? Obviously Jesus. That's why he calls himself the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness. If you are not following Jesus, you are walking in darkness. And in addition to that, we have the word of God that is also described as a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. We follow Jesus, we follow his word. That is what it means to do his will, and we will be doing the will of our Father. Here David says, let your good spirit lead me on level ground. We are sheep, we need to be shepherded by the great shepherd. A true disciple desires to be taught, and again, that is what it means to be a learner. Here, you have the connotation of being filled, being controlled, or being guided by the Spirit of God. 
David was asking for that same guidance. Just as Paul says in the New Testament, walk by the Spirit. This is what it means. He then says, revive me for the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. Bring me out of trouble. And in this last section, we see the last triplet in this psalm. He says, your name, your righteousness, and your loving kindness. Three of the greatest things you could ever possibly spend your time thinking about. Your name, your righteous, and your loving kindness. Your righteousness and your loving kindness. Three of these things that deserve all of our time and our attention. Something that we will never exhaust, that we will be learning about until we see the Lord and probably <laughs> a long time after that. These are the things that give David confidence that he will not be cut off, he will not go down into the pit like those who are dead, and in fact he will be lifted out of this time of trouble. And more than that, this is what gives him confidence that those who are ultimately persecuting him, the unrighteous ones, will in the end not prosper. We know there will be a time when all wrongs will be righted and no one will escape. The Lord sees everything. And again, if you are to come to the Lord like in many religions, they teach that you'll stand before the Lord and your good deeds will be weighed against your bad deeds, you're not going to do very well because if you have even one in the bad column, that's it. You're not suitable for heaven. But thankfully, again, remember that at the beginning of this psalm, we don't come to the Lord like that. That is not what the gospel offers to us. When we come to the Lord, we are clothed in someone else's righteousness, someone who did have nothing in that bad column, Jesus Christ. And that is a free gift that he offers to everyone. That is what the cross is all about. And then he says in the last verse, And in your loving kindness cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am your servant. And again, this is just a wonderful posture of a disciple. It reminds me very much of the words of a young Samuel when he was sleeping and he kept hearing the voice of the Lord and he wasn't sure who it was. And eventually he simply says, Speak, for your servant is listening. Speak, for your servant is listening. That is, again, very much the posture of a disciple when we come to the Lord in prayer, when we come to his word, to learn from him. This is the attitude of a true disciple. And when you couple that with urgent, desperate, fervent prayer, the Lord will do many wonderful things in this world with someone like that. Let me just end by giving you a couple of examples. Many of you have probably heard of George Mueller, but he was a man of great faith for 40 Six years, Mueller and his aides prayed into existence over five orphanages with the necessary equipment and needs to care for thousands of children. And this just grew exponentially, really. This was down in Bristol many years ago. It was a wonderful work of God. He had a very um, interesting principle for the financial structure of his ministry. He said it was to be a work of faith. No one under any circumstances was ever to tell anyone the needs of the orphanages. Help was never to be asked for. All the buildings, the food and the clothing, everything that was needed for those people must come only through the avenue of prayer. And that was his money policy. Everything worked through prayer. And it was one of the most successful ventures in the, well, the history of the United Kingdom at this time. However, as great as that is, that's not the story I'm really getting to, what I want to focus on is what brought George Mueller to his knees. How was it that he ended up being such a great man of faith and understanding the, what prayer was to be in the Christian life? This mighty work of God, rescuing thousands of orphans through this man and doing what he did, begun in a small cottage prayer meeting. George Mueller was a man of the world, disdained religion, 
only attended church at those events twice a year probably. He possessed no Bible, he loved no Christ, and he'd never heard the gospel preached in his early life. However, someone, an unnamed person, befriended him. Obviously, we understand what this person was doing, seeking to witness to this young man. Took him for a stroll one morning and invited him to a cottage prayer meeting. It's an old bit of a quaint saying there, cottage prayer meeting. It's basically the simplest of simple meetings. A few people, no clergy, we're just talking workers, millmen, tradesmen, miners at this time it would have been. This is like the late 19th century. During this stroll, this friend invited Mueller to one of these meetings. And he explained, it was not much. We read the Bible, we sing a gospel hymn, we pray, and then someone reads a printed sermon. However, Mueller felt the urge to go. And at this moment, the friend was suddenly a little bit hesitant about inviting him to something like this, thinking that he was a bit too... Uh, he wouldn't like it. And I think that's a lesson for us there. How many times do you think about inviting someone and then thinking, oh, actually, I'll wait until next week until so-and-so is doing this or doing that, or we'll just try and find a nice, easy event where nothing weird is going to happen. You know, we all think like that, don't we? Not that weird stuff happens, but... But that's what was going on in this house. But Mueller came to this prayer meeting, and I'm going to just read to you from a text here that sums up what happened here. He says, Together they attended the next cottage prayer meeting, and George was welcomed in a manner he could not forget. Come, as often as you please, house and heart are open to you, said the host. The friends sat down and sang a hymn. One of their number, who would later go on to be a missionary, fell on his knees and asked the Lord's richest blessing to rest upon the meeting. The simplicity of the scene touched Mueller, and the doors to a heavenly prospect began to open to his view. The hour of his destiny had struck, and Mueller was on the verge of the kingdom of heaven. Referring to the event, Mueller said, This kneeling down made a deep impression on me, for I had never before seen anyone on his knees, nor had I ever been on my knees myself. A chapter was read and a sermon also. Then a hymn was sung, and the master of the house dismissed the meeting with prayer. That was all. Another cottage prayer meeting was completed, yet all eternity will ring with the glad tidings of that meeting held in a humble cottage, for George Mueller was brought to the Lord through this meeting. The light of an eternal sunrise broke into his sin-dimmed soul, and he entered upon a life of prayer, one of the greatest lives of prayer that we have recorded for us in the whole of human history. Just through a few people being faithful and praying. Dr. Bernardo how many of you have heard of Bernardo's? It's still actually a functioning charity today. Originally started by a man called Dr. Thomas Bernardo. He became a Christian when he was 17 after hearing Hudson Taylor, the missionary the, to China, speak. And Bernardo's decided that he wanted to become a missionary. He was going to be a medical missionary to China. So he moved to London to study medicine. However, as he was in London, he became grieved with the amount of homeless children that he was witnessing. And as he was narrates, one night he stood on a rooftop where some homeless people used to sleep and he was gazing down below and he saw huddled forms of these little destitute waifs, hungry, cold, homeless, 11 of them in all where he was. They were outcasts, no one to love them, no fathers to provide. And out of that scene came a distinct call to devote his life to caring for these little ones. This student knelt down where he stood, lifted up his tender, his voice to the tender Heavenly Father and in prayer consecrated his life to this work. He asked God's help in the beginning, and soon 25 orphans were housed, and thus began the Bernardo Homes, 
where more than 100,000 orphan children have been cared for during the past seven decades. All of that originated in a rooftop prayer meeting with just one man. This is what I'm saying. This is the thing back to that quote of E.M. Bounds that I said at the beginning there. Every great achievement in the history of the Christian world, of this world, can be traced back to prayer, I firmly believe, at some point. E.M. Bounds said that God shapes the world by prayer. Prayers outlive the lives of those who utter them. They outlive a generation, outlive an age, outlive a world. Ask of me is the one condition God puts in the very advance and triumph of his cause. So like David, we can say, speak for your servant is listening. I am your servant. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.